One of my favorite stories of all time is that of John Newton. Many of you are familiar with him, the author of Amazing Grace, a converted captain of a slave ship who came to know Christ out of the deepest, darkest pits of sin. He himself, having been captured and sold into slavery for a brief period of time, would constantly reckon back on that time and constantly compare it with his own release from the captivity of sin throughout his days. His life is really a legacy of grace in so many ways, not just because he's the author of a, of a well-known hymn by that name, but because he persevered in ministering graciously to so many people. One one uh, biographer of Newton said that his home was a veritable asylum of the displaced and the depressed and the refugees and the fleeing and the weak. He ministered to them consistently, tirelessly, reaching out and loving even the adversarial at times. He had a well-known relationship with a liberal minister uh, in his own town that he eventually won by the love of Christ to the evangelical faith. But one unique recipient of that grace in the ministry of John Newton was a man named William Cooper. Cooper was a brilliant poet and hymn writer himself. In fact, he, he worked alongside of, of uh, Newton in the writing of the Olney Hymnal, where they wrote essentially a hymn a week for a period of 12 years. Newton spent 12 years alongside Cooper, but Cooper didn't write the whole time. Because about midway through their relationship, Cooper himself was cast into deep, deep depression. Newton writes about this. He says, for nearly 12 years, we were seldom separate for seven hours at a time when we were awake or at home. The first six years, I passed daily admiring and aiming to imitate him. During the second six, I walked pensively with him in the valley of the shadow of death. Cooper was overcome by a deep, deep depression and one from which he would never recover for the rest of his days. He would die in that state and Newton would preach his funeral some years later. But for the second half of the 12 years that Newton knew him, he daily continued to minister to Cooper despite the fact that Cooper wouldn't even leave his own home, would barely get out of his own bed. He wouldn't even bother on Sundays to rise up and walk across the way, the street, uh, to hear, hear Newton preach in the chapel there in Olney. Their, ba- their homes backed up to one another, so just across the, the garden there, across the lawn, Newton would go to him every day, encouraging him, ministering to him, visiting him, as he says, for the span of 12 years, barely being separated from him at all. And most importantly, Newton says, praying for him unceasingly. During that time, Cooper returned virtually no benefit to Newton, no praise, no thanksgiving for all the sacrifices John Newton was making. In fact, not only did he barely leave his house when he, when he was there and Newton came to visit, he would often berate Newton for continuing to minister to him. And yet John Newton persisted, ministered to him right up to the very last And always prayed for him. 
What is it that produces that? What is it that creates that? I mean, I would love it to be known as my legacy, not just that I wrote maybe one of the most famous hymns about grace, but that grace was so manifest in my life that I found and unlocked somehow the secret of persisting in ministry to difficult people. I would love it to be known of me that grace ran so deep in my heart and in my life that I never wavered, that I was faithful to the end, that I was a pure reflection of God's grace in my own life. I would love it if that was my legacy. That would grow so deep in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that would lead me the kind of patience of a man like Newton. Not just with Cooper, but with all men. Well, I believe today we come to a passage that can begin to give us some insight into just what it is that produces that kind of patience, what it is that produces that kind of heart and that kind of ministry. We can begin to grasp how we can learn to minister to people with endurance, minister in what sometimes seems like hopeless situations. We can learn the secret of hope when ministering to hopeless people. We've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, and I invite you to turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is our passage, and, and we've already taken note in the first three verses how much Paul's opening words serve as an introduction to the themes of the entire book and, and of the church that he's writing to. This morning is no different as we take a look in verses 4 through 9 in a greeting that Paul writes to this church. Greetings were typical, like they are even in our day, but as archaeologists have uncovered letters from the, from the church age, they have found there the, uh, the writings of secular people with general well wishes, like, you know, hope you're doing well, hope you and your family are in good health, those kinds of things. All of them very different from what you find in Paul's letters and in Paul's greetings. Because he infuses his letters with blessings that are full of Christian meaning. Literally, his theology comes through almost every phrase, as it does in everything that Paul does. And certainly, his greetings are no different. In fact, his greeting here in 1 Corinthians is unique in a very special way, not only for what he says theologically, but it's unique for what he doesn't say. It's unique because whereas in most of his other letters... He's thanking God and greeting them with some sort of blessing on behalf of something that they do or something uh, that they're carrying out, some sort of behavior, how they're standing faithful, how they're laboring, how they're working. Here in 1 Corinthians, though, Paul never mentions any of that. He never mentions anything that they're doing. He doesn't mention anything to do with their conduct or their behavior or their lifestyle because, quite honestly, there was very little to commend. You can compare it, for example, to Philippians, where he says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul says, you know, I'm thankful because as I'm out here laboring, I know that you guys are standing with me. I know that you send gifts of love uh, over and over again. I know that you pray for me faithfully. Or to the Colossians, he says, We thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So he says to the Colossians, look, I'm thankful for your love. He says to the Thessalonians, I'm grateful for your, excuse me, your labor and your kindness, your faithfulness. All these churches, he writes, and he says, you know, I'm so thankful and I pray and I thank God because of, because of this and that that you're doing and how you're standing and how you're laboring and all of these other things. But when you come to Corinthians, none of that, nothing, nothing about what they're doing or how they're behaving or how they're standing faithful, because quite honestly, they weren't doing very well. This is a difficult group of people. I mean, we know of four letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. We have two of them. This one, which as we'll see, involves a great deal of rebuke as you go through 1 Corinthians. We have 2 Corinthians, which again is a letter full of rebuke where Paul threatens at the very end that he might have to personally come and discipline the church with, a, with his own rod. And then we have the missing letters, which are one of them is sometimes referred to as the severe letter. Not very warm and fuzzy. One which Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he literally had to write through his own tears. Because he was so heartbroken by this group of people. So burdened by their unfaithfulness, by their compromise, by their wavering. They were a proud lot. They were arrogant. They were constantly quarreling. They were neglecting one another and abusing one another at the Lord's table. Parading around their own knowledge and causing one another to stumble. Many of them, in fact, rejected Paul personally constantly setting him up with negative comparisons against other of their favorite preachers like Apollos and Peter. This is the kind of people Paul was trying to minister to. And I can just imagine that somewhere in the course of all of this, the four letters we know, maybe others that we don't know about, somewhere in the course of this, he went to pick up the quill one more time. And he probably struggled in his own heart, wondering why, why do I keep doing it? I mean, these guys aren't going to change. They're not going to get any better. Every time I write to them, it's another issue. Every time I pick up my pen to write, it's another heartache. Why don't I just just throw the whole thing out? And why don't I go and find the church and the people who are easy to work with? Why don't I go spend all my time with the Philippians or the Thessalonians or the people that just encourage me when I'm around them? Why do I continue to go back with this group? What is it? What is it that caused Paul to press on? What is it that gives us hope when we're helping hopeless people? Well, I think this is essentially what we find in these few verses. As Paul somehow, some way, found a way to thank God for them. And he says he did it all the time. He prayed all the time thanking God for them. Let's just hear what he says in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. 
because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, I always give thanks for you. And I thank God, he says, for all of these things, that you're given grace, that you're given spiritual riches, that the gospel was confirmed to you, that you were called into fellowship with Him, and that you're guaranteed ultimate salvation. This prayer of thanksgiving presents really what are essentially many of the basic elements of what it means to be a Christian, being a recipient of God's grace, being fully convicted about the gospel, being always ready for the return of the Lord, being in fellowship with God Himself. Paul prays all these things, all these things essentially that God is doing on their behalf. And it's these things that not only give him the ability to give thanks to God for them, It's these things that actually give him the hope to keep working. They're the things that give him the hope to keep pressing ahead. They're the things that give him hope in helping hopeless people. Let's just look at these this morning. First of all, Paul says he gives thanks for the sufficient grace that they've received. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul couldn't give up hope on the Corinthians because he understood grace. He understood what it was essentially, that it is God's favor, God's kindness, God's goodness that comes to you apart from all your sin, apart from all your failures, apart from all your stumblings, apart from all your uh, disappointments or the way you disappoint others. It's God's favor that comes without us having to earn it and without us having to keep it. Paul understood what grace was. And so he could give thanks because if they are in Christ, he says, they're recipients of grace along with everyone else. And Paul understood that God doesn't dole out grace in varying proportions. He doesn't give more grace to one person and less grace to another. He doesn't give more grace to the person who's doing well, less grace to the person who isn't. He doesn't give more grace to the person who comes out of the right context and out of the right upbringing and out of the right circumstances and less grace to the next. He doesn't do any of that because His grace doesn't come based on anything concerning you. Paul understood grace And then it's based not on what you do, but on what Christ did. The sacrifice of Christ that purchased God's grace. And so when God looks at you, if you are a Christian, He judges you not based on your actions, but based on the sacrifice of Christ. Paul says it there right at the end of verse 4. This grace was given you in Christ Jesus. That's the cause of it. And so unless God is going to suddenly decide that the sacrifice of Christ isn't 
good enough, which he's not going to do, unless he suddenly decides that the sacrifice of Christ that he gave on the cross is not enough to pay the price for whatever, that is somehow deficient, uh, somehow it's, it's poor, if he decides somewhere, somewhere along the way that that sacrifice is insufficient, then he wouldn't show you the grace. But God's never going to do that. He's going to always judge every Christian worthy of all grace because it's purchased on behalf of them by Christ. So Paul could look at whoever it was. It doesn't matter where they are in life. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what a disappointment they are sometimes. It doesn't matter how many times they struggle. It doesn't matter how many times they hurt you. He can look at them and he can never give up because he knows they have the same grace that's operative in his life. Which, by the way, Paul also understood. He understood grace not only essentially, but he understood it personally. I mean, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that God judged me to be faithful, appointing me to be uh, to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received grace because I acted ignorant and ignorantly in unbelief, and, and the grace of our Lord overflowed, he says to me. And even later in Corinthians, he'll say, look, I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul understood grace not only essentially, I mean, he understood it doctrinally, obviously, but more importantly, he understood it personally. He never got over the abundant grace that called him out of the pit and out of the darkness of a blasphemer and an insolent person. He never got over that, and so he never failed to understand the power of that grace in the lives of other people. And the evidence of that, the evidence of that was his ability to act so patiently with difficult people. No matter how insolent they might be, no matter how unworthy they might be, no matter how frustrating they might be, grace, the same grace that had been extended to him, he would show and remember that same grace and the power of God that can work through it. So Paul gives thanks, first of all, for sufficient grace. But secondly, he says he gives thanks for their enriching gifts. Their enriching gifts. Verse 5, he says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift. You were enriched, he says, in him, that is in Christ. It's very similar, by the way, what he says to the Ephesians. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, we have a tendency sometimes to doubt that. Look around and think that somebody else received a greater share than what we received. To think that, you know, they're progressing on. They're deeper in their knowledge or they're more fruitful in their ministry or they seem to walk in a more steady, consistent pattern and we just sort of sometimes assume that God has shortchanged us. That God didn't give us everything that we needed. That's not true. That's not true at all. 
not true, it wasn't true of the Ephesians, it's not true of these Corinthians. God, he says, has enriched them in every way. All kinds of spiritual blessings, everything they need for life and godliness, God had already committed to them, just as He has to you. And so Paul says, I thank God for that. That when I pray for you, And as I remember you, I don't remember just all the unfortunate things and I don't dwell on all the frustrations. I constantly thank God that no matter where you are spiritually right now in your walk, I thank God that He's already given you everything you need for your Christian life. Now for Paul, particularly, what he had in mind, he says, was all speech and knowledge to begin with. The words are logos and gnosis. Two are the most common words in all the New Testament. A lot of people read that and they think that somehow Paul's uh, making some passing reference to gifts, spiritual gifts, which he will go on to speak about in chapter 12, gifts of speaking and gifts of knowledge, which were uh, overemphasized in the Corinthian church. But I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that leap is necessary. These are very common words, and as a matter of fact, even throughout the book of Corinthians, when he's not talking about spiritual gifts, Paul has much to say about speaking and teaching and knowledge. I really think it's a whole deal that he has in mind here. The fact that God had blessed this church, the Corinthian church, in the area of teaching or speaking, and in the area of knowledge, or doctrine. They were recipients, as we noted last week, of the richest tradition of teaching, perhaps that any church has ever known. I mean, they had Paul, and then they had Apollos, who followed them, mighty in the Scriptures. And then they had Peter, apparently, who came to them as well. Some of them might have even heard Christ himself teach by some of the references he makes in the opening chapters. I mean, they had been recipients of of the prime teachers of the day. And I think it was the preaching of these gifted teachers primarily that Paul has in mind, specifically because he frames it all in verse 6. In the context of when they first received the testimony of Christ and it was confirmed to them. He's basically saying, first of all, look, I thank God that you have been faithfully taught. I thank God that the whole counsel of God has been given to you. Everything that needs to be said has been said to you. Everything you need to know, you already have received. And you've received it from some of the best teachers of the world. And this is the manifestation of God's grace. The fact that they had received such great teaching. In fact, he'll come back to this chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can look there. He'll come back to this in, in, in chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Down in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, but you're God's field and God's building. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 6, he'll say this. 
He said, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, that you might not, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written concerning us. That none of you would be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul says, look, don't, don't, don't think greater of us as teachers than what we are. We are nothing but God's instruments. And if anything occurred through us, he says, it was by God's power. So don't go beyond what's written, he says. All we are are the instruments, the, the growth, the fruitfulness, the benefit, and it comes from God. It comes from Him. There are those, however, as he says back in chapter 3, verse 10, who build with the wrong materials, who build with subpar materials. He speaks about himself being a master builder who laid a foundation that someone else builds upon. But he says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone, anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. In other words, there is a contrast. Some teachers build with gold and silver and precious stones. And then others, he says, build with wood, hay, or straw. Meaning by that, that some teachers build the church of God with the things of God. They do it with the word of God. They do it with the wisdom of God. They stand week in and week out. And they don't share with you the rubbish of the world. The wood, hay, and straw, they share with you from the Scripture, from God's Word, what it says and what it means. So what Paul's saying about these guys is, look, you have received the best, the best teaching, the best building materials, the best truths. You've been fed from the Word of God. You have been recipients of all speaking All knowledge, everything that you needed was properly given to you. And I give thanks for that. He's not even bothering right now to contemplate whether or not they're taking advantage of it. He's not stumbling in his prayer life over all the disappointments of these people. He's saying, God, I'm just thankful that you gave him the truth. I'm just thankful that you gave them all the knowledge and all the teaching that they needed. So that, he says, the gospel, in verse 6, was confirmed among you. The testimony about Christ was confirmed. That word confirmed is a word that speaks of making something secure, certain, beyond doubt. In fact, it's the same word that you find down in verse 8 when he speaks about God sustaining Christians till the end. Same word. That God secures you, that God makes certain your final salvation, that he makes it beyond doubt that he's going to save you. He says the same thing happened to you regarding the gospel. Because the faithful preaching that you received, the testimony about Christ and the gospel message was so clearly presented to you, the foundation was so securely laid that you were left in no doubt as to the centrality of Christ. It was, we would say in modern terms, driven home to you. Paul's confident of that. 
He rejoices in that. And it continues to give him great hope as he ministers to these people. By the way, Paul says over in chapter 2, verse 1, when he came among them, he knew nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, you're around Paul, you're going to hear about Christ. Everything he, he did was to point them back to Christ. In fact, even here in the first nine verses of Corinthians, he mentions Christ nine times. I mean, this, is, this was thoroughly uh, Christological in his writing and in his preaching. Everything he preached was built on Christ. Everything he prayed for was built on Christ. Everything he hoped for was built on Christ in them. And so he thanks God that they were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge and that the gospel, the ministry, the testimony of Christ was confirmed to them so that, he says in verse 7, you're not lacking in anything. You're not lacking in any gift, any charisma, a word that will eventually be used in spirit to, to refer to spiritual gifts. But I don't think he's actually primarily referring here to their spiritual gifts. I think he's actually primarily referring to the spiritual gifts of the apostles and the great teachers who were among them, who spoke the word of God to them and gave them knowledge. I think that because that's really the, the verse 7 is speaking about the result of verse 6. It's a result clause. When the, when the gospel was confirmed to them, they, had, they, they were left with, with no lack, no deficiency, no wanting. Paul might have in mind their spiritual gifts as well, but the point is still the same. He re- simply rejoiced that they were given all they needed in terms of spiritual riches for the Christian life. They were lacking in nothing. They had not been shortchanged. Everything necessary for spiritual growth had been given. Everything necessary for spiritual progress. And so Paul rejoices in God for that. He's able to give thanks. And he's able to have hope as he prays for them because of that. And then thirdly, Paul gives thanks. And Paul has hope for these hopeless people because of their coming glory. Because of their coming glory. He says there at the end of verse 7 that while they're not lacking any spiritual gift, he says that's while you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks about them just almost as a passing comment. You're not lacking, he says, while you continue to wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that because really that's probably one of the most common descriptions of a Christian that you'll find in Scripture. They are someone who waits for the revealing of Christ Jesus at His return. In fact, Hebrews Hebrews 9 says it this way, Christ, having been offered once for the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. Who's He going to save? He's going to save Christians. Who are Christians? They're the ones who eagerly wait for Him. This is fundamental 
to what a Christian is. Paul says of the Thessalonians that they turned to God from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Peter says that we are to fix our hope on that day. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace to be brought to us. Now it's unfortunate that not all Christians live that way. It's unfortunate these Corinthians didn't live that way. As a matter of fact, they, they seem to have grown quite satisfied with this world. Quite content here. And that was one of their big problems. Over in chapter 4, in verse 8, he says, You already have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul says, look, you, you're, you're already there, guys. You're, it's as if you've arrived. It's as if you're content. It's as if you no longer anticipate the Lord's return because you feel like you're on top of the heap right now. They began to live and act like this world was their final home. In contrast, there in chapter 4, going on, verse 9, Paul says, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all men sentenced to death. Because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and are buffeted and are homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Look, the apostles weren't parading around in some gorgeous robes and doling some grand hat to bring attention to themselves. He says, these guys, he says, we are the scum of the world in the minds of everybody else. And we go around and we don't have a place to sleep. We go around half the time hungry. And no one is, no one's upholding us. He says, we're constantly having to go out and work for our own food, laboring with our own hands. I mean, this was not a glorious life. This is not a description of people who are satisfied with this world or living for it. These are people who knew this world wasn't their home. These are people who had no affection for this world. They were constantly, constantly laboring for the one to come. Paul makes the contrast at the end of Philippians 3 between those, he says, whose God is their belly, who glory in shameful things, who set their mind on earthly things, he says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what a Christian is. 
This is what's in the heart of a believer. That eager longing, that anticipation, that zeal. Many of us remember sort of coming up as parents in those great days when you would come home and your little kids are just eager and waiting and they would be asking for hours and they would, they would just, just tackle you when you came through the door, right? And you come home and there's songs and there's singing and people are hanging on you and knocking you down and they just want to roll on the floor for hours with you and it's just delightful, right? But unfortunately, those days don't last. We grow and they grow and the excitement sort of fades and it's a little bit sad. I can imagine the Lord gets sad. And we're not excited about His return anymore. We're no longer eager. There is no song. There is no more joy. But this is what a believer is, Paul says. We are, we are eagerly looking somewhere else because we're citizens of another world. Paul knows that. He knows that these guys aren't citizens of this world. As he prays for them, he knows not only that, but he knows that God is going to, therefore, keep them and preserve them to the end. That's what he says in verse 8. He's going to sustain them guiltless to the end. The end of a, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate salvation, the one that they're supposed to have their hearts set on, isn't yet complete. But Paul understands that while they're still in the fallen, perishable, mortal, and sinful bodies, that they will one day be presented before God in perfect, in eternal, and in sinless bodies. God's guaranteed that, that He would cause us to stand complete in Him. And even these believers... Because they're in Christ, Paul knows that, and he takes hope and he takes courage that the good work God began in them, he will complete it. He will complete it. And then finally, Paul can give thanks and he can have hope because of their faithful God. Because of their faithful God. He says in verse 9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is really, ultimately, why Paul can give thanks. This is really, ultimately, what keeps him going. Why he can continue to minister. This is why he doesn't give up when trying to help hopeless people. And this is why you and I shouldn't give up, because our thanksgiving and our hope isn't primarily directed at the faithfulness of people around us. It is primarily driven by the faithfulness of God. That He will accomplish by His power whatever He wants to accomplish in us. And that He won't leave off the work. I think it's at the end of... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says this to the Thessalonian believers. He says in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. 
This is who our God is. The one who surely, most certainly, unwaveringly will accomplish His purposes. You might look around and you might begin to doubt that. You might see the stumbling in someone's life and you might think that somehow they've been neglected or God's not going to work, that they're always going to sort of dwell at this subsistence level of Christian living. Well, you have a long way to go in your faith in God. You say, well, my my faith in God is fine. It's my faith in that person that's struggling. No. If you have faith in God, you will be unwavering in your ministry to them. You'll be able to pray. You'll be able to give thanks. You'll be able to hope even when the situation seems hopeless. This is how Paul ends his opening to them. God's faithful. The one who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't desire to be in fellowship with a double-minded, weak and wavering Christian any more than you do. God doesn't rejoice in their stumbling any more than you do. God desires, because He's called them into fellowship with Himself, God desires their faithfulness more than you do. And so you can bet that the one who called them into fellowship with Himself is going to do everything that's necessary to bring them to a place of holiness. You can bank on that. You can hope in that. And it can become the foundation not only of your prayers but of your continued ministry with all men. Some of you, however, for you there's none of this hope. Because quite honestly, you're not in Christ. All the the great things that we've spoken about this morning, all the benefits that are applied, all the hope that's given all the optimism, all the glory that's awaiting one day, it's not yours. Because you've never given your heart and life to Christ. Our encouragement to you this morning is this, that when we close in a word of prayer and a song, in just a moment, that you wouldn't leave here still so hopelessly lost and without any true hope in the world because you haven't found Christ. It's our desire, it's our prayer that you wouldn't leave here before you come to me or some other elder or some of our pastors or maybe someone in the congregation that you know is a true believer and that you'd ask them how the grace of God which operated in the life of the Apostle Paul, which operated in the life of a slave trader like John Newton, which operated in the life of any of us who were sinners, can restore hope in your life, can change you, make you His own, bring you into fellowship with God Himself, and destine you for glory. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning, so thankful for grace, unending grace, sustaining grace. We're thankful that it has guaranteed for us progress, in our faith and the hope of glory. Lord, it's to that end that we recognize that all praise and honor goes to You. 
but also that we recognize that all of our hope, not only for our own lives, but for any that we minister to, is not based on the way that we conduct ourselves. It isn't based on our own behavior. It's not based on the faithfulness of people around us. It's always, always, always grounded in your power and grace that your name might be magnified in whatever comes through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.